Today, most of us know that algorithms control what we see on Facebook or what we're recommended on Netflix. And algorithms don't just pick news stories or TV shows for us. They also influence our lives in the physical world. But what exactly is an algorithm? An algorithm, the way we teach it in college, is a sequence of well-defined steps that is designed to get you from a set of inputs to a desired outcome. This is Suresh Venkatasubramanian, a computer scientist at the University of Utah. So what aspects of our lives do we perhaps not realize are controlled by algorithms, but actually they are? At this point, it would be easier for me to say all of them. I'd be less wrong by saying all of them than I would be by saying none of them. These algorithms influence our lives in very subtle ways. For example, every time you call a lift... Or an elevator, Tom. All right, or an elevator, there's an algorithm that controls how it moves and therefore how long you have to wait. But there are lots of different ways that algorithm could work. Now, the simplest thing you could do is keep track of who pressed the button first, go to that person, take them where they need to go, then see who pricked the button next and take them where they need to go. That would be sort of inefficient. Fortunately, real elevators don't work this way. Instead, they have a slightly cleverer algorithm. So another algorithm you could say is, let's not even worry about who pressed first. Let me go up to the top or to the highest point where someone has made a request and just pick up everyone I want to pick up along the way, deliver them to where they need to go, and then when I come down, do the same thing. And that gets you very close to what elevator algorithms do right now. The elevator algorithm, as we computer nerds call it, is also used inside hard disk drives, which face a similar sort of scheduling problem. This algorithm strikes a compromise between speed and fairness. Everybody gets to where they need to go eventually, but they don't get served in the order that they requested the lift. Some people, you could say, get to jump the queue. It's a reminder that algorithms, even for apparently innocuous things, have value judgments baked into them by human programmers. And of course, it goes way beyond elevators as more and more decisions get made by machines. Because algorithms are still made by human beings and those algorithms are still pegged to basic human assumptions. They're just automated. Mm -hmm. If you don't fix the bias, then you're automating the bias. Mm. That's Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, the U.S. Congresswoman, talking at a recent conference about the problem of algorithmic bias. The risk is that human biases and prejudices like racism and sexism, are getting baked into software that underpins so many aspects of our lives. But in some situations, an impartial machine, if we could actually build one, might be preferable to a human who may be deliberately or unconsciously prejudiced. So how can we understand and address this question of algorithmic bias? Well, history can help. Because this idea of trying to use computers to eliminate human shortcomings turns out to be very old. In fact, it's as old as computing itself. It goes right back to the first ever computer program, written in 1843 by a woman called Ada Lovelace. From The Economist, I'm Tom Standage. And from Slate, I'm Seth Stevenson. Welcome to The Secret History of the Future. I went to the Science Museum in London and saw the 
famous portrait of Ada next to a model of the analytical engine. And I thought, oh, what is this beautiful woman doing next to this machine? This is Betty Toole, a historian of computing who spent decades studying the life and work of Ada Lovelace. Ada was the daughter of Lord Byron, the British romantic poet who was once famously described as mad, bad and dangerous to know. If I may, Tom. She walks in beauty like the night of cloudless climes and starry skies. Yes, yes, thank you, Seth. That's Lord Byron. So, Ada's mother, who was a mathematician, encouraged her to take an interest in maths and logic from a young age because she thought that was the best way to prevent Ada from turning out like her unpredictable and disreputable and poetry-writing father. He'd had several children by different women, and he left Ada's mother a month after Ada was born. So, a scientific upbringing was meant to keep her mentally grounded. Math and logic, her mother hoped, would be the opposite of poetry. But the young Ada Byron, as she was then called, found poetry in numbers instead. As a young girl, Ada wondered about the science of rainbows, and she speculated about how she might be able to make herself fly. She investigated the idea of making wings, modelled on birds' wings, in various materials. Eventually, she concluded that the most promising approach would be to build a steam-powered flying machine in the shape of a winged horse. She did research, she asked people, and she tested and experimented how she could do a machine that might fly. It's amazing how our strategies as young children often reflect our strategies in later life. As her mother had hoped, Ada turned out to have a talent for mathematics, and it seems she wanted to apply that talent to real problems. I wanted to really see how she thought and what was important to her. I moved to England and decided I would read her letters. And one of these letters, sitting unnoticed in a box at the Bodleian Library at Oxford University, provided an illuminating glimpse of how Ada's mind worked. I went into a box of letters that were not catalogued, and in this box was a torn piece of blue paper in which Ada wrote... If you cannot give me poetry, can you give me poetical science? To me, that encapsulated the way she understood math. Ada's mother moved in scientific circles, and when Ada was 17, her mother introduced her to Charles Babbage, a mathematician and inventor with an unusual obsession. By the time he met Ada, Babbage had spent 10 years trying to build a steam-driven mechanical calculator that would never make mistakes. And you'll like this, Seth, because it's all to do with sailing and navigation. Oh, I love it. Tell me more. Well, mathematical tables were used in navigation, um, basically to do the trigonometry so you could work out what your course should be and where you were and things like that. And that meant that errors in those tables could be deadly because they could make a ship run aground. And so they had to be checked very carefully. And it was when checking a set of tables with a friend that Babbage became so exasperated by the errors that he cried, I wish to God these tables had been executed by steam. And he imagined building a steam-powered mechanical calculator which would generate the numbers for the tables automatically and even print them without error. 
So Ada wanted to build a steam-powered flying horse, and Babbage wanted to build a steam-powered computer. These two seem like peas in a pod. Yes, absolutely. They clicked right away, and Ada wanted to know all about this mechanical calculator. She was thrilled to discover that Babbage had a prototype, a sort of proof of concept, that he could show her. Ada and her mother went to his workshop to see it in action. It was called the Difference Engine. And here it is. This is the very contraption that Babbage showed Ada Lovelace way back in the 1830s. Seth and I went to the Science Museum in London to see this original difference engine prototype. It's about the size of a car engine. It's got a lot of uh, intricate gears and a big winding lever. So looking at this thing, I would not know where to begin in terms of interpreting its output. I see that there's a handle, I could crank something, and presumably all of these many, many gears would turn and click and interact with each other and have some sort of output, but it's, it's pretty confusing. There's a lot of, of numbers on dials. There are a lot of teeth that are, <laughs> that are meshing with other teeth. Um, they're sort of arms as well. I think that's the key, that when an arm hits another arm, it adds something on, and so there's, there's some sort of, you know, logic in there. It's not just everything goes round the same way every time. Ada's mother, after they saw this, she wrote, we went to see the thinking machine, for so it seems, last Monday. And seeing this mechanical computer seems to have further stimulated Ada's interest in mathematics, and she began to study it in more depth, and she stayed in touch with Babbage over the next few years. This mechanical calculator was never completed. Part of the reason was that while working on it, Babbage had the idea for a machine that was even more complex than the difference engine. This was the analytical engine. Oh, it was everything in the world. (laughs) It was the difference between a mechanical calculator and a computer. This machine would be able to do more than just print tables of numbers. It would, in theory, be capable of calculating anything at all, driven by instructions on punch cards. Babbage imagined a machine that was entirely mechanical, but like a modern computer with a processor and a memory and so on. In the early 1840s, Ada, who was by now married and known as Ada Lovelace rather than Ada Byron, got involved with the project. To help Babbage in his fundraising efforts, Ada translated a summary of some lectures he'd given about the machine from French into English. But Ada didn't just translate the lectures. She added notes explaining how the machine would work and what it would be capable of doing. And those notes ended up being longer than the original text. It's clear from her notes that Ada immediately grasped the potential of this machine to manipulate information in new ways. She wrote... We may say, most aptly, that the analytical engine weaves algebraic patterns just as the jacquard loom weaves flowers and leaves. To demonstrate the sorts of things the analytical engine would be able to do, Ada wanted to provide a worked-out example. She decided to write a program to calculate a particular mathematical sequence called the Bernoulli numbers, which are fiddly to work out by hand but would be easy for a computer. She wrote to Babbage, I want to put in something about Bernoulli's numbers in one of my notes as an example of how an implicit function may be worked out by the engine without having been worked out by human head and hands first. She wanted to implement a mathematical algorithm so it would work on this particular machine. And when you turn a general algorithm into something that runs on a specific machine, that's what we call a program. 
Ada called it the calculus of operations. She presented it in her paper in the form of an elaborate table. Like a modern programme, it consisted of a series of lines and a different mathematical operation was performed on each one. It also used brackets, again, just like in a modern programme, to show which lines of the programme were repeated inside a loop, which Ada called a cycle. She spent days working it all out, drawing and redrawing her programme in pencil. At one point, she wrote to Babbage. My dear Babbage... I am in much dismay at having got into so amazing a quagmire and botheration with these numbers that I cannot possibly get the thing done today. I am now going out on horseback. But eventually she prevailed, writing to Babbage that it was complete. I have worked incessantly and most successfully all day. You will admire the table and diagram extremely. They have been made out with extreme care and all the indices most minutely and scrupulously attended to. Lord Lovelace is at this moment kindly inking it all over for me. I had to do it in pencil. People had written down algorithms before, but not like this, with loops and branching. This was the first time someone had written down an algorithm in a form that corresponded to running it on a particular kind of computer. And that's why this is widely considered to be the first real computer program. And Ada Lovelace is considered to be the first ever computer programmer. But her paper, which she'd published in a scientific journal, is important for another reason too. Ada Lovelace could see far beyond the possibilities of writing programs to do simple arithmetic. She realized that the numbers that computers manipulate could stand for other things. The engine can arrange and combine its numerical quantities exactly as if they were letters or any other general symbols. Supposing, for instance, that the fundamental relations of pitched sounds in the science of harmony and of musical composition were susceptible of such expression and adaptations, the engine might compose elaborate and scientific pieces of music of any degree of complexity or extent. This was the first time that anyone had expressed the idea that computers could do more than just arithmetic. They could also manipulate text or music or anything else. Charles Babbage dreamed of machines that could calculate things without human error. But Ada Lovelace imagined how those machines could change the world. She foresaw the power of computing and wrote the first program, even though the analytical engine was still stuck on the drawing board and didn't actually exist. It was an extraordinary achievement. But her paper also contains an unexpected lesson for us today, and Ada Lovelace never knew it was there. I think computer programming is a very difficult thing for humans to do, and we're so used to um, describing processes and algorithms to each other in very high-level terms. But computers don't work that way. You have to really get down and get every detail right. This is Sinclair Target. He studies computing and public policy at the University of Chicago. And he also blogs about the history of computing at 2bithistory.org. Just as you can translate a recipe from English to French, he translated Ada's program for the analytical engine into a modern programming language called C. I thought by translating it into C, which is kind of the lingua franca, I mean, it's a language that a lot of people know, it would become obvious that it really was a program. And in particular, in C, you can see that there are these loops. And I thought that was very impressive because as far as I know, Ada Lovelace was the first person to publish something with a loop. So what happened when you ran Ada Lovelace's program on a modern computer for the first time? 
Well, I think this is maybe the coolest part of that story. And it was a, a very interesting moment because I put all this work into translating her program. And because it had, you know, I translated it into a modern programming language, I was able to run it on my computer. And so I, I, I tried to run it and I kept getting the wrong answer. Sinclair tried and tried again to get the program working. I thought at first for a long time that I'd made a mistake because I was translating this table into a modern program and there were lots of things that could have gone wrong there. But eventually it dawned on me that the, the error was actually in her original program. We don't know if the error was made by Ada herself or by whoever had to typeset her program so it could be printed. But the error was basically just a typo. So a tiny, tiny mistake, but of course it, it ruins the whole program. You get the wrong answer at the end. But it sent you know chills down my spine because it turned out that I'd spent that time wrestling with a bug that dates from the 19th century. And, and if you really think that Ada Lovelace was the first person to write a complex program, and I think that's true, then, then really this is probably the first ever bug in all of computer science. It was almost like, you know, connecting with the past in a way, so. Seth, I think this tells us something really fundamental about software and the dream of automating away human failings. The very first program by the very first programmer contains a bug. Well, to err is human, and programs are human creations, so they are going to reflect the imperfections of the humans who made them. But the stakes are much higher today than they were back in 1843, because just as Ada Lovelace imagined they would be, computers are everywhere now doing all kinds of things that are way more complicated than just calculating tables of numbers, things that reach into every corner of our lives. We are acting as if we are building these these algorithms that are inherently fair, inherently objective, and will improve the world, when in fact we know nothing of the, of the sort. And in fact, we could be making things worse. We're not just predicting the future, we're causing the future. This is Kathy O'Neill. She's an activist and author with a mathematics PhD who wrote a book called Weapons of Math Destruction that's all about algorithmic bias. An algorithm is just a process to decide things. It's an automated decision-making process. The big trend today is to use algorithms based on machine learning. So the algorithms are trained using past examples. So just to take, choose an example, like a hiring algorithm, white-collar companies, large corporations are like, oh, we want to hire successful people. Let's use our historical data to figure out who is going to be successful. And what you do for an algorithm is you look for patterns. You look for patterns historically that led to success. But if you train today's algorithms using yesterday's data, there's a problem. Typically, a corporate entity will define success as somebody who's had those secondary markers of success, which is they stayed for a long time, they got promotions, they got raises. It's reasonable. But if you think about what you're doing, because you're training on historical data, is you're saying whatever was true in the past will be true in the future. You're propagating that. Who was successful in the past, after all? It wasn't women, it was white guys, right? So if you apply that trained algorithm to a current pool of applicants, it's not just going to pick up the white men, it is. It's going to exclude perfectly qualified women because they do not look like they were successful in the past. That's what an algorithm does. And that's just one example of the way that modern machine learning systems, which are trained using thousands or millions of examples, can produce unfair outcomes. 
There have been countless examples of algorithms that produce these racist or sexist outcomes. Facial recognition systems trained using mostly white faces, for example, may not recognize or may miscategorize non-white faces. In one infamous case, a system built by Google to categorize photos labeled black people as gorillas. Another Google system turned out to be showing ads for well-paid jobs to men far more often than to women. And earlier this year, researchers analyzing Facebook's newsfeed algorithm found a significant skew in delivery along gender and racial lines for employment and housing ads, even though the ads were not supposed to be aimed at any particular group. And the problem affects much more than just what people see on the internet. Increasingly, algorithms are also used in things like deciding who gets a loan, who gets interviewed for a job, whether someone gets bail, or whether or not a self-driving car hits the brakes. So what's going wrong and what can be done? Here's Cathy O'Neill again. My answer is make better algorithms. It's still theoretically possible for us to do it. Um, and I haven't given up hope that we can. The original promise was always, we're going to transcend human bias. But instead of actually checking to see if we did that, we just assumed we did that. So what I'd like to do is see the next step. Let's check. If the bias is intolerable, then let's adjust the algorithm. Let's account for that you know, bias. Let's make it better. Show me the evidence. Turn it into a science. At the moment, there's no obligation for companies to check that their code is producing fair outcomes. Suresh Venkatasubramanian, who helped us understand algorithms earlier in the episode, also studies algorithmic bias. He thinks this shouldn't be left just to computer scientists to sort out, and that we're going to need new rules and processes and regulations to ensure fairness. So it's not just about the code, but it's about the code and the societal structure around it as well. Solving the problem isn't just about processes. It's also about people. Some of these problems would have gone away if you have representation for groups that have traditionally not been represented. Having as wide a representation in the building of software as there is in society. Because once you do that, you bring all these different perspectives in. People ask different questions. We all benefit from that. The code benefits from it. Like it or not, computing is the language of the world we live in. And we want everyone to be able to speak that language, to exist and flourish in that world. So auditing algorithms for bias is a great idea. But a big part of the reason why algorithmic bias occurs in the first place is the lack of diversity in the technology industry, and in particular, the underrepresentation of minorities and women. And yet this wasn't always the case, at least when it comes to the involvement of women, who played a prominent role in the computer industry's early years. Well, interestingly, it's not just Ada Lovelace, right, who was a woman doing programming early on. In fact, the field of computer programming and computer operation, everything that we would, you know, know today as jobs within computing, IT, systems analysis, and so on, women did them initially. This is Marie Hicks, a historian of computing at the Illinois Institute of Technology and the author of Programmed Inequality, a book about the gender flip in computing. So if we look at before a computer was a machine, it was a profession, and that profession of being a computer was also a feminized profession. And that actually carried over as the job begins to be automated, as the computer becomes a machine, the same labor force carries over. So the women who are doing hand calculation previously, they're the ones who are actually working on the electromechanical and then later electronic computers. But things started to change in the mid-1960s. 
a lot of people thought, well, when computing becomes electronic, that's when women get pushed out or when women decide to leave or they just can't hack it. And that's not what happens at all. In fact, women are the go-to computing labor force well into the electronic age. But it wasn't the skills needed to do the job that changed at that point, or the nature of the work. What changed was how computing was perceived. All of a sudden, there's this understanding that this is going to be incredibly important to management in the future, this type of work. And so they're unwilling now to have women doing these jobs. And so you start to understand that there was a lot of wasted talent, a lot of wasted opportunities. And also, there were probably a lot of different ideas and better ideas about how to solve certain problems. And those, those got lost. So there's a direct line from the lack of diversity in computing to these problems with algorithmic bias. I think there certainly is. I think that when you have the same sorts of people at the table, you make mistakes that mean that product or that service is going to be worse for um, people of color. It's going to be worse for all women. It's going to be worse for other minority groups like people who have disabilities or like the LGBTQ community because the folks who are designing it simply are not attuned to, you could say in in the kindest sense, they're not attuned to these issues. Or you could also say more bluntly, they just don't care. It doesn't affect them. It's a desire to bring about change that explains in part why Ada Lovelace has become much more widely known in recent years as a role model for women in computing. But Marie Hicks says there's a risk of taking this too far. You know, we put so much stock in her mythology because we're really quite desperate to find women heroes in our technological past. I'm here to tell you that women were all over computing's past. They were all throughout the industry. They were all throughout everything that was happening from the earliest days on. Just because you can't see them doesn't mean they aren't there. Ada Lovelace has become a mythologized figure in the history of computing. In fact, there's a whole subgenre of science fiction that tries to imagine a 19th century steampunk computer revolution based on Babbage-style mechanical computers and how that would have changed history. But the funny thing is, this computer revolution almost happened. And the reason why it didn't was not for lack of effort on Ada's part. After her paper was published, Ada Lovelace made an extraordinary proposal to Charles Babbage that they should go into partnership to build and sell the analytical engine. Her suggestion was that she would run the business side of things while he attended to the technology, just like a modern startup with a CEO and a CTO. Ada wrote to Babbage saying, If I am to lay before you in the course of a year or two explicit and honorable propositions for executing your engine, would there be any chance of allowing myself to conduct the business for you, your own undivided energies being devoted to the execution of the work? And she wrote to her mother. If he does consent to what I propose, I shall probably be enabled to keep him out of much hot water and to bring his engine to consummation, which all I have seen of him and his habits the last three months makes me scarcely anticipate it ever will be unless someone really exercises a strong coercive influence over him. Sadly, Babbage said no. 
He seems to have worried that he would lose control of the project, and in any case, Ada's health was failing. In 1852, Ada died at the age of 36, and the analytical engine was never completed. But imagine if the first computing CEO in history had been a woman, and how that might have affected the subsequent development of the field. Instead of Steve Jobs and Steve Wozniak founding Apple, or Bill Gates and Paul Allen starting Microsoft, all men, obviously, the computer industry's original dynamic duo would have been Lovelace and Babbage. But in other ways, Ada Lovelace has influenced the course of computing long after her death. And that's because her 1843 paper, containing that first computer program, also includes the first speculation about whether computers should be considered to be intelligent or not. She wrote that the analytical engine has no pretensions whatever to originate anything. It has no power of anticipating any analytical relations or truths. In other words, she thought that computers were just incapable of original thought or creativity. They were limited to doing what they were told to do by their human programmers. More than a century later, in 1950, another pioneering British computer scientist, Alan Turing, called this Lady Lovelace's objection in a famous paper in which he also introduced the idea of the Turing test to determine if a machine can be considered to be intelligent or not. Turing included Ada's objection in a list of nine objections to the idea that machines could be intelligent, all of which he disagreed with. He thought computers could, at least in theory, be intelligent and generate original ideas. Tom, this is something that people still disagree about. If someone uses an AI to, say, help them compose a piece of music, the question is whether the human or the AI should get credit for that music. And is that creativity if you're you're using a computer to help you generate something like that? Yeah, it's an active area of debate. And the important thing about Turing, including this in the paper, is that he essentially brings Ada from the 1840s into the 1950s to the forefront of computer science um, by referring to this. And it's another reminder of just how far ahead of her time she was. And today, there's another sense in which Ada continues to participate in the modern debate about the uses and limits of artificial intelligence technology and data-driven technologies in particular, of which artificial intelligence is one, is kind of changing our relationship between um, power, the state, um, companies, and each other, actually. This is Carly Kind. She's just been appointed the director of a research institute whose aim is to promote better public understanding of the impact of AI on society. And guess what it's called? I work at the Ada Lovelace Institute. Also known as Ada for short. ADA has been recently established to ensure that data and AI work for people in society. And that means ensuring that technological developments and data-driven technologies uh, support and respect and reinforce uh, rights and values rather than undermining those. And that includes working on algorithmic bias by bringing a wider range of voices into the debate around artificial intelligence. One of the things that we feel very strongly is that inequality is experienced most severely by those um, from lower socioeconomic backgrounds. So how do we make sure those people's voices are heard in conversations about how to govern this technology? And that's a diversity of lived experience, of background, of geography, as well as anything else. So although the original Ada is no longer with us, her namesake organisation continues her work of exploring the potential and the limitations of computers. Having a woman um, as our um, kind of namesake and in an organisation at the moment primarily staffed by women, I think is is really important. But also because, 
you know, of her visionary nature and the way she looked at how technology and society would interact. And that's certainly at the the intersection of where we as an organisation are as well. Algorithmic bias is a symptom of deeper forms of unfairness in society as a whole. Maybe it seems like just a small part of this much wider problem, but as computers penetrate into more and more aspects of our lives, it's vital that prejudices aren't embedded into our technological infrastructure. To address the problem of algorithmic bias, we need greater diversity of thought, background and experience in computing today and in the future. And we should pay more attention to the unsung pioneers who paved the way in the past. That's the lesson we should take from the extraordinary story of Ada Lovelace, who saw possibilities that other people didn't because she had a different perspective and thought in a different way. Her insights have ensured her place in history, something else that she seems to have foreseen. That brain of mine is something more than merely mortal, as time will show. I'm Tom Standage. And I'm Seth Stevenson. The Secret History of the Future is a joint production of Slate and The Economist. It's produced by Bart Warshaw and Kate Holland. The senior managing producer for Slate Podcasts is June Thomas. The executive producers are Gabriel Roth, the editorial director for Slate Podcasts, and Anne McElvoy, head of audio at The Economist. Ada Lovelace was played by Karina Fernandez. If you haven't already, subscribe to the show on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. And leave us a review so you can help others find the show too. Thanks for listening. Listener.